I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm, uh, I feel a little uh, overwhelmed by, by the topic today, and, and I'm not sure exactly why, because it's, 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 it's on some level a little bit more of the same. It's, it's, it's certainly consistent with everything that uh, we ever discuss here, but um, um, I, I'm, I'm concerned that it shouldn't sound like when I'm giving it over as, uh, as esoterica. Um, because what I really want to talk about is uh, just explore some of the depths of this concept that we know from the Zohar that God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one. And I'm going to show you a, a number of illustrations of this. And really, it's, um, it, it will be very much a, a, a Jewish view of, of, of the universe. How we, how we really perceive the universe and God working within it, and, and what, what the Torah actually is. See, the, the, reason why, um, the reason why this is sort of feels a little overwhelming and challenging is because we really have to um, uh, break our superficial understanding that the Torah is just a book that sits on a desk somewhere or in a bookshelf. But to understand that the Torah is the fabric of the universe itself, that God fills the entire universe and exists dimensions beyond, that the Jewish people are activating all of that energy and harmonizing all of that energy and bringing it into this place of Geula, into this place of redemption. Um, and all of these components are working, you know, so incredibly precisely together. Um, so it's one organic whole. So, um, but, but to see it in its particulars um, risks sometimes making these concepts academic. And the last thing that I want is for these things to be academic. Because I think that um, one of the sort of the chief obstacles uh, to really having a direct relationship with, with, with Hashem is that so many people think of God as an idea, that God is up there somewhere, and I'm here, and please God just don't zap me or stop me from getting what I want, or maybe even give me what I want. But God is somehow this, this sort of like um, disconnected construct which is floating someplace, as opposed to the loving, guiding force which fills the entire universe, and that we are a uh, subset of. In other words, you know, I always like to give this teaching. I've given it a million times, but forgive me, I want to say it again. So I once pictured a conversation between two fish, and one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. So what, what's the joke? The joke is that there's nothing but water. Water is the only thing that exists. But you've got these two fish thinking they're great intellectuals, you know, philosophizing whether water exists or not. Meanwhile, that's all there is is water. So this is us and God. This is us and the Torah, which is that we're immersed in the Torah itself. We're immersed in God himself. I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and I said, where did you park your car? And he said, across the street. And I said, do you realize that you can't get to your car without swimming through godliness? So this is, this is the idea that, that God is all around us, and that, we're, that all of life is a constant conversation with God. All of our thoughts, all of our actions, everything, we're constantly interfacing with God. And that on an even deeper level, Everyone who's been put into our life, every situation that's been put into our life is just our way to interface with that person, to interface with that situation, to connect with God. That's all it is. Everything is just this ongoing conversation with God. Or if you want to think of it of another way, just like a kaleidoscope. You turn a kaleidoscope and the image changes and it changes and it changes, right? That's us again in God. God we're, we're sort of the constant, from our point of view anyway, and God is just turning the situations, turning the people in our lives, turning our fortunes, turning the situations in our lives, so that giving us different opportunities and different settings to connect to him. So, but again, we, 
hopefully can grasp this idea of the omnipresence of God. And, and, you know, it's such a consoling thought. The words of consolation that we say to a mourner, we say to, we, 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 we say to them that you should be comforted and, 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 and the name that of Hashem that we use when we speak in this language of comforting to a, a mourner is um, Hamakom. So Hamakom is the name of Hashem. Hamakom means the place. But Hamakom is a very rare name of Hashem. You don't see it used in the prayers that often. So why would we comfort a mourner with this very particular name of God, meaning the place? And, and the an answer, one answer is, is to understand that the soul that just left this world is still within the place, meaning to say that God, who fills all of existence, that the soul still exists within existence, that God is omnipresent, and that the soul is still connected with us, even if not physically at this point. So, so the comfort is that just like God is still there, and hasn't left you, the soul is still here, and, and we still have a relationship with it as well. So, this idea, hopefully, we, we can grasp. And to understand that, that, that when we talk about Torah in a meaningful way, that we have to get rid of this idea of religion. Because religion, I think, at least in a secular, sort of Webster's level, right, dictionary level, religion says to me that there's real life and then there's religion. <laughs> you know, religion is somehow kind of this kind of like, oh, what, what your opinion is or wh- whatever it is or, or, or a belief system. But what, what we're, we're saying something much deeper. We're saying that, no, this is actually what exists, this is actually the only thing that exists. When we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, that God is one. When we say Ein Od Milvado, that there is only one power. We're not saying that our God is stronger than your God, or our God is better than your God. We're saying there is only one power. God is the only one that exists. Not that ours is better than yours. There is none other than God. Period. End. That's all there is. So, so now, this, this idea, this idea that, that it's just we're immersed within godliness and that this is reality, right? Okay, that's, that's, that's good. Hopefully, by this point, we can all grasp that concept. But now I, I want to deepen it because we have, a, we have this idea that God looked into the Torah and created the world. Okay? So that means that the Torah existed before the world existed. The Gomorrah goes further. It says that it existed 974 generations before the world existed. So what is this concept of the Torah existing before the world created? That doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating in outer space before there was a world. Because when we talk about the world, we're talking about the complete universe. So anything that's got any physicality to it, that's part of the world. And we're saying that the Torah existed before all of that. So then what does that mean? So God had a will for the world, a desire for the world. He had a dream for the world before he created the world. And then he created the world according to this vision that he had for the world, that he had of the world. And that's the Torah that existed before the world was created. God's plan for the world. So when it says that God looked into the Torah and then created the world, that's like saying, I looked at my my airplane ticket, and then took the flight. Meaning to say that the information, the desire, existed before the actual action took place. I don't know if that's the best analogy, but anyway, the point being that God had a desire already for it, 
And then he enacted that and made the world. Okay. But now, let's take this a step further. That means that this world is made, if the Torah was God's dreams for the world before he created the world, the next step is that he actually created the world out of his dreams for the world. He took his desire, his vision for it, and he shaped that vision into the world itself. That's what it means when we say that God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. Because just like the Torah is composed of the Hebrew letters, God took these proto these prototypes, the archetypes of the letters, these, the, the energy, the desire, the dreams that filled the letters, however you want to express it, and shaped it into the world itself. But that means that the fabric of creation, of reality, is made out of the Torah. So, I've heard it said like this, that we don't have the mitzvah of tefillin, which we put on our arm. We don't have the mitzvah of tefillin because we have our arm. We have an arm because there was a mitzvah for tefillin. Just a, another way of looking at it. In other words, God had this dream for the world, and then he created us to realize that dream, to interact with that dream. So Reb Shlomo put it this way. He said that, when you keep the Torah, you're praying God's prayers and you're dreaming God's dreams. So, so now, we talked about it a few weeks ago, and, and I recommend this talk. I think it was maybe my favorite talk of the year so far. It was called Black Fire on White Fire, Science versus Religion. And I want to go further into that direction because the Torah itself, the Torah sc scroll itself, is a map of what I'm talking about. We know our tradition is that the Torah is black fire on white fire. The black fire meaning the letters of the Torah. The white fire meaning those dimensions which haven't been revealed yet. So the words of the Torah is that in reality which has been revealed. And the white fire are those things that exist that haven't been revealed yet. Those things that exist in the spiritual realms. When the spiritual realms become concretized, become revealed in this world, then they're on the level of black fire, the written world. Before then, they're on the level of white fire. But as a document, then, you have to realize that the Torah scroll itself is not two-dimensional, but it's very multi-dimensional. Because, again, the black fire is that which has been revealed, and the white fire is all the secrets of the universe, all the other letters. The white fire contains all the other letters of the Torah. Right? All the letters of the Torah. It's just some have become revealed, and some are in the spiritual realms. Now listen to this. The Imre Noam, the Jikover Rebbe, brings this unbelievable teaching. He says, do you know this word neflaut, which means wonders? Okay, that's like miracles. Is actually two words compressed together in one. Niflaot is nofel os, which means the fallen letters. Okay, so again, understand that the Torah scroll itself is black fire, that which has been revealed, on white fire, the spiritual realms which haven't been revealed yet. But they exist. We just can't see them with our eyes. So, if you think about the Torah, the world being created out of the Hebrew letters, that God looks into the Torah and then makes the world, that the whole world is made out of the Torah, now revisit this idea of niflaot, what wonders are. Remember, every single moment of reality is a miracle. And as the Rambam says, nature, the natural order of things, black fire, if you will, are just miracles that we've grown used to. They're no less miracles. So what is niflaot? What are wonders? Fallen letters. 
nofel os, meaning from the white fire, which contains all the letters, they've fallen down into this realm and become revealed in the black fire. That's what a wonder is. It's a revealed miracle. It's the white fire manifesting itself as the black fire. But it's no less of a miracle just because it's been revealed. Because nothing has to be as it is. Anything that continues to exist is an ongoing miracle. I always think of the time when I first started going to Daily Minion. I was so happy. I'm a Levi. I was so happy to be getting the Levi Aliyah every time I'd go. Wow, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, I'm getting the Levi Aliyah every single time. And then all of a sudden it hit me, I'm the only Levi here. (laughs) Right? And that day that I thought, oh, I'm the only Levi. That's why I'm getting the Aliyah. There was another Levi and he got the Aliyah. And I thought to myself, just because something happens every single day doesn't make it less of a miracle, less of a gift. Right? So, so the black fire, the letters of the Torah, that which represents the revealed aspect of reality, even though it looks like a constant, like the Rambam says, it's miraculous. We've just grown accustomed to it. But again, this idea of niflaot, nofel os, that's the letters fallen down from the white fire, from the spiritual realms, coming down to this world, forming this world. Okay. Now with this as an introduction, I want to tell you something from the Imre Noam, something amazing. That's the Jikover Rebbe again. So he says, if you take the name of Hashem, that's, and I, I always recommend that you think of it from top to bottom, so it's Yud and He and Vav and He, and of course Yud represents the highest dimensions of reality, and then He is already, according to Reb Olamaba, and then the Vav is bringing that energy down to the bottom He, which is this world. Okay? Now listen to this. According to the Zohar, the bottom He is Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay? And the top three letters, Yud, He, and Vav, are Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Okay? And the idea is that that Moshe Rabbeinu brought the Torah down to this realm. Remember, the bottom He of Hashem's name represents this world. Olamasiya, the world of action. Malchus. That's, that's this dimension. The bottom He. That's Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu brought the Torah down into this world. In other words, all of the energies that we're talking about, like on the level of white fire, if you will, of the spiritual realms, all of that imprint of reality, the actual blueprint of reality, gets brought down to reality by Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu equals the bottom letter He, which stands for this realm. Because he's the one who reveals all the black fire. He's the one who the written Torah, and the oral, oral Torah for that matter, comes through. Is that clear? Are we, are we communicating? Okay, I hope so. So now, the Jikover points out that these, remember, when we're talking about, when we're talking about these letters of Hashem's name, and we're, t- we're, we're, we're viewing it as a, as a map of the cosmos. So, like, the name of Hashem is like a cosmic map, okay? Again, the Yud, the top Yud is the upper reaches and dimensions beyond what we know here. And then it comes more and more down to reality as God condenses his light. Remember, one of the Kabbalistic names of Hashem is the Or Ein Sof, light without end. This is like the concept of the white fire, okay? And then God compresses his light till we have the physical universe. That's already the black fire. Okay, that's the revealed world. But there's stratas. There's stratas of light. Kabbalistically, we refer to this as the four worlds. They're not four separate worlds. It's one continuous spectrum, but different, different quantum jumps 
in, in spirituality or energy. Okay? So the teaching that I want to share with you now is that, remember, we're saying that God made the world out of his Torah. Now listen to this. It's an unbelievable teaching. We know that there are four levels to learning Torah. And this is called pardes. Okay? But I never heard this before, that these four levels, pardes, correlate with the four letters of Hashem's name and these four stratas of this world, these four energy jumps where it becomes progressively more spiritualized, right, as you go up toward the Yud of Hashem's name. So pardes, which stands for the, the orchard or the garden or paradise, right? You can hear the word paradise in pardes. I'm sure this is where the word paradise comes from, by the way. Um, and isn't it beautiful that, that the word for paradise that we use till today actually is talking about delving into the Torah, right? You know, on Tisha B'Av, which is our saddest day of the year, we're not allowed to learn Torah. Why? Because it makes you happy. <laughs> it's paradise. It really is. You know, you know what the Gomorrah says? Gomorrah says if you find that your prayers aren't being answered, you know what you should do? Learn Torah. That's the fixing. And one of the interpretations is that if you learn Torah, you'll forget about your problems. <laughs> because it's paradise. It really is. When, because your soul becomes in harmony with the universe and with God. Right? This is what I'm saying. That Hashem, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one. These are the ultimate soulmate constructs. When you harmonize with these things, everything is okay. Even if everything isn't okay, all of a sudden everything is okay on the deepest level. So Pardes represents, it's an acronym, which the, 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 the pay for Pardes represents Pshat. So Pshat is... What is the text itself saying? What is the simple, most direct meaning of the text itself? Then you have the next level. Remez. Okay? Remez means already hints. That means that you're working within the text, but you're showing how, you know, this word is actually, you know, the gematria of that. Right? The numerical equivalent of that word. You're still working within the text. But you're showing how, or this word is actually an acronym, the first three letters of this phrase in the Torah. That's already remez. All right? It's, it's a little more expansive because you're expanding from the text itself. Then you have the Dalit of Pardes, which stands for a, a, a drusha. A drusha is already, you're using the text to show how it illustrates a moral or an ethical or a philosophical point. Sometimes you're just using the text as a jumping-off point, but, the t but you're explaining the text just on another level. This is what is meant by the text, but you're not necessarily working within the words of the text itself. That's, that's, the, that's a drusha. And then you have the final level, which is the samich of pardes, which represents sod, which is the secrets of the Torah. So this is the deepest, deepest levels. And you need them all together. And I saw that Ben Yoyada pointed out something very nice, which is that Hashem calls the Torah good. He says, I've given you a good gift. I'm telling you it's good. Right? So the word for good in, in Hebrew is tov. Tov is gematria 17. So the Ben Yoyada, that's the Ben Yishchai, points out that if you take the four levels of good, if the Torah is good, the four levels of good, so do four times tov, four times 17, and you get the gematria for the word chayim, which is life. Because the Torah is eitz chayim, it's the tree of life. So in other words, when you completely immerse yourself into these four levels of the Torah, you get life. Torah gives you life. We say Torah chayim. It's a Torah of life. 
and you really feel the life of the Torah when you immerse yourself in the Torah. But now, I want to show you how, how you see these four levels and how they correlate with the Yudke Vavke. Okay? So, so again, it's, it's actually, they, they work in an inverse way. So what's this dimension? The lower hay, the lower hay of Hashem's name, Yud and Hay and Vav and Hay, right? Let's start with the lower hay, which is this world, right? So this world correlates with Pshat, the simple level of the text. You see? So because what's around you is what you can touch, what makes sense, you know? You know, if you hand in your taxes a month late, then they fine you. And you say, why? And they point to the written word. And they say, because right here it says you're supposed to have it on this date. And if you have it by this date, you get fined. That's, that's this world. This world works on a shot level. Right? You put in a quarter in the parking meter. It says 15 minutes. You come back 20 minutes later, you have a ticket. Why? Because you only paid for 15 minutes. <laughs> now it's 20 minutes. That's, that's this world. This is shot. The simple, the simple level. But then, as we know, and I can't help but to give this example just to review it because I, I just want to make sure that we're communicating. Probably I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I, I think you're all familiar with these concepts by now. But, but let me say it again very quickly, just, just so you know. See, Rabbi Nachman one of his last words that were reported was that I heard in his name that he said as he was leaving this world that a lot of people think of this world that when a person leaves this world it's like they're walking from one room to another room. He says, I say it's like someone walking from one side of the room to the other side of the same room. See, the reason why I think that's so deep is because we have to understand that this world and the spiritual world, it's one, it's one room. It's, it's one room. In fact, it says in Perke Avos, it says that God has five possessions, and it names them. Avraham Avinu is a possession. The Torah is a possession. Um, and then it says, very interesting, it says, heaven and earth, one possession, you know, if God came to my accounting firm, I would have said, you know what, put that down as two possessions. It doesn't say that. It says, heaven and earth, one possession. In other words, there's this, the physical world is spirituality condensed. Materiality is condensed spirituality. The idea is that God takes this outer aspect of his life, of his light, and condenses it down to the material world, one spectrum. Not two ideas, the material is here, the spiritual is there. One spectrum. And the worlds overlap and interact. And God willing, I'm going to get a chance to go more deeply into that soon. But, so, so now again, if God made the world out of the Torah, and we can take Hashem's name, Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, which represent the outer reaches of Hashem's spiritual light being slowly condensed till we have the bottom Hey, the physical universe, that white fire coming down as black fire. Again, the bottom Hey being the black fire, the written word, Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Now let's look again at the levels of the Torah. Pshat is this world the most concrete form. Remez, we go up a notch because Remez already, it's getting a little bit looser, a little more associative, right? The words of the Torah, this word actually stands for these things all the way over here, right? That's actually gematria. We're actually leaving the, um, the body of the words themselves but staying within the worlds. In other words, it's loosening up, it's expanding. Then we have drush, Oh, Drush, we're actually leaving the text altogether and we're making ethical points and we're using the text as a springboard 
to bring Torah concepts. That's even more expansive. And then we get to the top letter, which correlates with the Yud of Hashem's name. Sod. These are all the secrets of the Torah. This is the most expansive aspect of the Torah. Do you see how it absolutely correlates with Hashem's name? It's an awesome, an awesome thing. And again, the idea is that we exist within this structure. When we talk about time and space, when we talk about the structure of the universe, we're also not just talking about dwelling within God, we're talking about dwelling within Torah. So when it says that each person is a different letter in the Torah, all of us are letters in the Torah. Because what are we? We exist in this dimension. Our souls exist in this dimension, which means we have to have a correlation with the pshat or the black fire because we're revealed entities of godliness. So all of us are letters of the Torah. One of the things that always blows my mind whenever I think about it is that when you have a group of people together, like us in this room right now, each one of us is a letter in the Torah. So I want to know, what are we spelling right now? Right? Right? That's, that's awesome. And then maybe someone's... I'm going to put this talk, God willing, on the internet. Maybe someone's going to listen to it five years from now, ten years from now. Mashiach should already be here. Then they're adding themselves to this group. Right? What's being spelled then? And then you know what? When all of us walked into the room, we were holding at one level. Now we're learning Torah. Our souls are all going up. Now all the letters that we, whatever we spelled initially, now we're spelling something else. Because now it's going in a different order. Because the energy level in this room is now higher. So what are we spelling now? What verse in the Torah are we spelling now? What gematria are we correlating with right now? With what passage? Right? So this is also the souls. This is also the souls. So when I tell you that the Zohar says that Hashem, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one, you have Hashem, Yud, and He, and Vav, and He, that stands for God. You have the Torah, Pardes, right? Pshat, Remes, Drush, Sod, that's also correlating with the name of Hashem. And you have Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Moshe, the Jewish people, all one. All the different levels one. Now the original Rebbe points out that when you look at the letter Aleph, Aleph is the first letter of the Aleph base. Aleph means one. And Aleph stands for godliness because everybody knows Aleph is actually composed of three letters, two Yuds and a Vav, which add up to 26, which correlates with Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke. Okay? So, so if you take Aleph, which stands for Hashem, and it means one, but you spell out the word Aleph, you actually spell out the word, Aleph, Lamed, Fe, that adds up to, the originer says, 111. 111. That's the Torah, Hashem, and the Jewish people. All one within God's oneness. Now I want to show you something which hopefully will give us an appreciation of how tied we all are to each other in this world and in the next world. Okay? And all of our parents, those of us who have parents are, who are alive, they should all live long, and grandparents, they should all live long. But those of us who, whose uh, parents are in the, in the next world, um, their neshama should have an aliyah, but we should also understand how, how close they are to us. Now, in Parshas Ve'era, we just saw, we just read this, this passage. It's um, chapter 6, verse 5. And Hashem is speaking to Moshe, and he says, he's talking about the Jews being enslaved. He says, Moreover, I have heard the groan of the children of Israel, whom Egypt enslaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Okay, so this is, this is big. God's saying, I, I hear them crying out. And, and I remember. So, so I've heard their groan. That's, that's kind of the, the key word because that's the real, ah, 
there, our cry. He's heard our, he's heard our cry. So now I want to point out a, an amazing Torah here from the, uh, from the Balaturim. So this word groan in Hebrew is na'akat, okay? And, and the Balaturim is going to show us just how amazing the Torah is, how infinite the Torah is, right? I always like to say, and it's consistent with what we're talking about today, that the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. That's the, that's the white fire compressed into the black fire. That's this idea of niflaot, wonders, nofelos, fallen letters, from the white fire to the black fire. Now we're going to see how we cross dimensions. We're going to see some interdimensional transit right now, literally, in terms of this word. Okay, So this word, which means groan in Hebrew... The Balaturim says that if we use the system of gematria called atbash, and I'll explain that again for those of you who need a review on that, if we, if we turn that word into atbash, and then we take the gematria of the atbash, it actually equals the word ha'avos, our fathers, or our parents, right? Avos is combined, it means men and women together. So, so let's, let's look at the Pasuk again and see, see what it's saying. Moreover, I have heard the Avos. I've heard our parents, or Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, our holy mothers too. I've heard their cry. And I'm answering their prayers. That's how it, that's how it reads now. Now, now, what is atbash? How does that work, that the, this word for groan becomes ha'avos? How does it work? So the Gemara, in Mesech de Shabbos, in, in an Daf Kuf Dalit, brings this system of gematria. So this is a very ancient system of gematria that we're talking about right now, where there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and you take the first 11 letters and put them on one line, okay? And then you take the next 11 letters and you put them underneath that. So you have two lines, one on top of each other, of 11 letters. That's the 22 letters. But that you sort of do it in a horseshoe fashion. In other words, when you get to the end of the first line, you keep on going till you finish the second line, such that the very first letter of the Aleph base, underneath it will be the last letter of the Aleph base. That would be At, the Aleph and the Tav. Then the second letter of the Aleph base, Bez, will correlate with the letter below it, Shin. And that's why it's called Atbash. Then the third letter on the top line, Gimel, will correlate with Resh, the third to last letter. Okay? And that's how it continues. Now, so the question is, what? And then you can exchange them. You can, you can trade one letter for another letter. Whatever letter is on top of it or below it, they can be substituted for each other. And that's a system of Atbash. Okay. So my question is, why do you think the Torah is employing this method that our fathers, God heard the cry of our fathers and answered this prayer and redeemed us from Egypt? Why use Atbash to bring that point? I mean, that's a very interesting system to be drawing on in order to bring this point. Now, there's certain things that we say that are sort of stock, not stock in a negative way, but customary things that we say to each other at different occasions. One thing that we say is if someone's having a yurt site, we say the neshama should have an aliyah, it's, everyone says this all over the place. It's just, it's, a, it's the proper thing to say. That means the soul should have an elevation. Okay? Another thing that's a customary thing to say, another automatic thing that people say is when they hear about someone who passed away, they say to the person who lost the person, the person should be a good tabeta. That means a, an advocate. That that person should daven on your behalf 
the person who's left the world, should daven on your behalf and daven on behalf of the entire Jewish people for the redemption of the world. Again, this is just an automatic thing that, 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 that people say. So this idea that what is a soul doing when it leaves this world, it's davening. <laughs> That's what it's doing. In addition to basking in Hashem's light and learning Torah and, and participating in like, you know, like the utmost pleasure, it's also working. And it's also davening for us and for the whole world. So given the fact that the souls are doing this, I think that the reason why the Torah, I'd like to suggest that the reason why the Torah is saying that our fathers, that God heard the prayer of our fathers, that the Torah is expressing this in the form of Atbash, is because when you go from one line of 11 to the other line of 11, right? When you're actually switching over, you're going from one dimension to another dimension. Because when the soul leaves this world, it's going from one dimension to a more spiritualized dimension. So when it's talking about the prayers of the Avos, it's talking about it in the language of Atbash because it's describing how it's working in a higher dimension. Let me put it another way. The Gemara says that when a soul leaves this world, it's like stacked cups. Imagine taking one cup and putting it into another cup. Do you see how the bottom of that cup inside almost fills the cup that you're holding in your hand entirely? How it intersects entirely? But at the same time, you can't touch that cup inside. That's what it says, how the souls of the next world are so close to us in this world. You have intersecting dimensions. You have a dimension which is right here, like the cup inside of another cup. It's right here right now. But we can't touch it. But it's right here. We can't see it. But it's right here. Just look at the two stacked cups. And I love, I love that because do you know how much physics is in that? And this was said about 2,000 years ago, this analogy. Look how the rabbis, who didn't have the language of, you know, quantum physics and things like that, but nonetheless were able to express these interdimensional, trans-crossing over of dimensions, concepts, in the simplest, clearest ways. I mean, it's so advanced. It's so advanced. So that's what it is with, with our parents also. Those of us who have parents in the next world, we should understand they're right here. They're davening, they're working, they're doing all these things. They're right here. Maybe we can't see them, maybe we can't touch them. But, I, but, but the prayers, their prayers, right here it says, God heard the prayers of the Avos, and he answered them and he saved us. You know, Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach, I heard him say that in one time, in terms of just talking about the effect of the Holocaust on the Jewish people, that we lost, that just measuring in terms of Torah study, he was just making a, one point, he wasn't talking about the, the entirety of the tragedy of the Holocaust, but just on, on the point of our understanding of the world. He, he, he was just talking about how, how much depth we lost as a people in terms of understanding what the world is. There will always be Torah scholars in every generation. Hashem promises us that. But there's, there was a depth that, that we had that we've lost. And there will be people who will always know maybe the whole Torah, but that depth takes generations and generations and generations and generations to build up and to manifest in this world. 
And, um, you know, I think it's Rav Soloveitchik, I'm not sure, but one of the big rabbis talked about how when they would announce El coming, I heard Rabbi Wine make this point, that when they would announce the, the month of Elul, that it said that even like the, the, the fish in the water would sitter, they would, they would shiver with in, in yira, in awe, about what was coming into the world. And he was saying that this level of consciousness, that you, it, you have to live generations and generations, maybe even hundreds of years, in order for it to get into people's bones. And what we lost was something enormous. And so, I just talk personally. When, when, when I have the privilege of, of, of learning something like from the Imre Noam, from who I've been quoting, like a Torah like this, that the Yudke Vavke correlates with Pardes, right? Which is a whole other way of understanding like how we dwell within the Torah itself. I read in, in, in a, uh, on one of these science pieces that, you know, you can, they, they, they can excavate, they excavate sometimes, and sometimes within these glaciers they'll excavate. And they'll dig down, and there will be some water there, say. And you can drink water that's like, you know, hundreds or maybe a couple of thousands of years old. Can you imagine drinking water from like, like a thousand years ago? <laughs> that, but that's really what it is. So when we open up our, our holy books and you can access the mindset of the people before everything was wiped out, it's like you're drinking water that's more than hundreds of years old because you're re-entering the taste and the mindset and the depth to a certain extent of a different world. That world isn't here anymore. You know, just in terms of appreciating just who our rabbis are and, and, and what it means to learn from really holy books. I was looking at something from Pirkei Avos um, yesterday and it, it really, it really uh, made me happy, you know? Even though it's very challenging. Um, I hope that I'll be able to find it. It, it says, I'll just quote it from outside. It says that a person whose yira shamayim, that means awe or fear of heaven, meaning to say yira has the same letters as the word to see, that, you, that you're aware that you're standing before Hashem and your mind is blown that you're standing before like the infinite one. That's, that's yira shamayim. It says someone who has more yira shamayim, it's a very great trait, than wisdom, right? Someone who knows a lot. Okay, so what's the relationship between someone who knows a lot and someone who has yira shamayim? Because you know what? You could be like a college professor and you could know a lot and you could have zero yira shamayim. You know, I gave a talk uh, this past week to some... Sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And I said to them, I said, Do you know that you know more Torah than professors at Harvard? And I wish I was giving them a compliment, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you've got people who are legitimate geniuses who know nothing. You know, my 10 year old girl can read. A Rashi in Rashi script? I sit and she's doing her homework. She's reading Rashi fluently. 
Okay, not all. They, they rehearse it in class and everything like that. She, I'm not saying she can read any Rashi like that. But that she can read any Rashi like that blows my mind. You know? So, so what's the point? The point is, is that a person can have a lot of wisdom, right? And it is wisdom. But they can have very little or no Yirat Shemayim. So in Pirkei Avos it says that which person's wisdom lasts? Like whose wisdom endures through the ages? And they say you have to have more Yirat Shemayim than wisdom. If you have more Yirat Shemayim than wisdom, your wisdom endures. Interesting. I would have thought, well, if I want my wisdom to endure, the more wisdom that I have, the more it will endure, right? No, not when it comes to Torah. Different laws of physics. You want your wisdom to endure? You have to be aware that you're dealing with Hashem in every action that you have. If you're aware of that, then your wisdom will endure. Then it goes on to another point. Similar point, but different. It goes, okay, what about good deeds? Whose, whose wisdom is going to endure? Someone who has a lot of good deeds or not so many good deeds? And it says, the only person whose wisdom is going to endure is someone whose good deeds outweigh their wisdom. <laughs> so you have to have more good deeds than wisdom for your wisdom to endure. Meaning to say, what is the point of wisdom if your wisdom is real, real, real wisdom? That you know how important it is to do good deeds. <laughs> so then you're either doing them or you're not doing them. So you have a very cutting, very precise definition of real wisdom. You say you're smart. Are you smart enough to actually believe what you think that you know? <laughs> if that's the case, then you're out there doing good deeds all the time. So now let's put it all together because they don't connect the dots for you. They, the rabbis put it out there and they look to us to connect the dots. That means that for someone's wisdom to endure, they need two components. They have to have more good deeds than wisdom and more yirat shemayim than wisdom. Okay, so now let's put this in simple language. Because I'm just coming to make this one point. You know, when I talk about drinking water that's hundreds of years old, or whatever it is, every time you open up a book, you're able to access worlds ago in terms of depth. Who are these rabbis that we're learning from? Who are the rabbis who have lasted through the generations? Who are these people whose wisdom has endured? Who are these people? So it's explained very clearly in Pirkei Avos. All of these people who we're learning from had more Yirat Shemayim than wisdom and more good deeds than wisdom. You know what that means? They had a lot of wisdom. That means they were huge Yirat Shemayim and huge Balei Chesed. That means that when you open up a Torah and, and, and you open up a book and you see someone's name there, you're learning from the best people that ever lived. These are the best people that ever lived. Because if they weren't, their book wouldn't be in your shelf a thousand years later, 500 years later, 300 years later. You want to be one of these people? Have a lot of Yerushalayim. Do a lot of good things. Then maybe a few hundred years from now, people will be saying, hey, you know what he said? <laughs> because that's the only way you make the grade. You, wanna, you, you want your name or your teaching or your wisdom to survive? You know, probably a lot of people are saying what you're saying. But they're only going to be quoting certain people. But again, the point is not to make it about us. The point is to give us an added level of appreciation what our Masorah is, who our rabbis are, who we receive these teachings from. You know, it says that the Vilna Gon, there was a custom, very amazing custom, 
You don't really see it anymore. It disappeared. But, you know, you talk about the depth, again, of earlier generations. They would take upon themselves to go into personal exile. And they would, great rabbis, would dress as beggars and would just go wandering. They would, go, they would wander from city to city and they would be hidden. Like people wouldn't realize. They would look like beggars. No one would know how great that they were. And the Vilna Gon himself was one of the people who did this. And I saw a story, an amazing story, um, that he was given hospitality by a particular person. And you know, back then, books, if you had books, that was a big deal because books were very, very expensive. So he stayed in someone's house and as he was leaving, and he looked like a beggar, right? So the, he leaves the next day and he tells the man, he says, you know, that book you had, I forgot the name of the book, it was missing the last four pages, so I wrote them in for you by hand. <laughs> Means he had memorized the entire book and wrote the last four pages in for him by hand. Can you imagine? So one of the things that he did was he was looking at different copies of the Gomorrah before it was standardized. And there were different, different girses, as we say, different... Like sometimes it was written with this phrase and sometimes this word was included and sometimes this word was left out. And he was trying to correct and make an authoritative girsa, a standardized version of the Talmud. And so the Gra, the Vilna Gon, wrote a commentary that's in every Talmud today. And he'll point out, leave that word out or add these two words in. Right? But that's just in the margin. And it says that before he would make any emendation, he would fast that day. Because who is he, right, to change the Talmud? To say that this is the corrected version of the Talmud. But he knew. But nonetheless, he fasted that day. So, so we can rely. We can rely on our rabbis. We can rely on them. And the Masorah, the Masorah, this chain of tradition, you know, one of the great ironies, I think, is that today everything can be falsified. You know, it used to be that if you would imagine, like when we were growing up, if you saw a courtroom drama, like no one could get out of someone saying, I have a photograph of this person taking the thing, <laughs> right? That would be the utmost proof. Now, with Photoshop and everything like that, everything can be falsified. Everything can be falsified. And so, the most low-tech thing in the entire world, a parent telling a child, is actually the most reliable thing. Oddly. Strangely. And so, our tradition is that our parents who were at Mount Sinai told their children, who told their children, who told their children, who told us. And that's what it is. And if you think about it, you can't actually ask for a better form of transmission or a more authoritative form of transmission. Because everything else can be falsified. And by the way, if everyone's starting new religions, why are they all basing it on ours? Why is Christianity and Islam based on Judaism? You want to make up your own religion? So make up your own religion. Why are you basing it on ours? Because the entire world knew at that point that it happened. That the Torah was given at Mount Sinai to the Jewish people. For them to try to start a new religion to deny that was completely self-defeating. It was a non-starter, so they didn't even bother. And I just want to say one last thing just to finish up. Talking about this world and the next. These dimensions. You see, in regular geometry, what we call Euclidean geometry, parallel lines, the definition of parallel lines, you have one line above another line, and they never intersect. Right? It's kind of like what we were talking about, Atbash. Although, that curves over. So, But anyway, parallel lines never intersect, by definition. But if you have something called three-dimensional geometry or non-Euclidean geometry, Boolean geometry, goes by different names. 
That's, that's two-dimensional geometry, regular geometry, set against a three-dimensional background. So like curved space. So if you have like, say, draw two lines, one above the other, and then all of a sudden you fold the paper, you curve the paper, what happens is parallel lines actually intersect. It's kind of funny. In a curved space, parallel lines, which normally would never intersect, actually intersect. Okay? So I want to give that as an example of this world and the next world, and we'll end with this. You see, in this world, parallel lines intersect. What do I mean by that? If you've got a very, very great rabbi, or a great Baal Chesed, a great, someone who's a great refined spiritual person, they're, they're, they're standing right in front of you in the same dimension, in this dimension. You can touch them, you can hug them, you can shake hands with them, whatever it is. But they're actually inhabiting a different dimension. <laughs> because the way they see the world, and the way they understand the world, and the way they're utilizing this time-space continuum is completely elevated. They just happen to be standing next to you. So parallel lines are intersecting. Even though they're inhabiting a different space than you are, in this dimension's parallel lines intersect. And you can actually talk to them and benefit from them, interact with them. But in the next world, they're going to go to their space and we're going to go to our space. And at that point, parallel lines don't intersect. Right? They'll be where they are and we'll be where we are. That means that this world is an unbelievable opportunity. Now let me make it even clearer. You can go to a bookshelf and take out a book by the Baal Shem Tov, by the Vilna Gon, right? And you can open it up and you can access and make a connection to someone who's beyond, 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 beyond. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I hope that it's true. That if you, you know, I heard from Reb Shlomo, there's this concept that in heaven, there are different yeshivas in heaven. That there's, you know, Rabbi Akiva has his yeshiva, right? I'm sure the Baal Shem Tov has his yeshiva. Like, all the great people have their yeshivas. I'm sure the Ben Chai has his yeshiva. Now, can you imagine if you learned their Torah in this world? Maybe you'll be admitted into their yeshiva. Maybe because you made a connection in this world where parallel lines intersect, that all of a sudden you'll be able to enter into their yeshiva when parallel lines no longer intersect. Because you've absorbed a little bit of them in this world. So in the next world, you have a piece. You have an entry ticket. Again, in the simplicity of Birkei Avos, they say that this world is like the lobby and the next world is like the banquet hall. Prepare in the lobby so that you can really participate in the banquet hall. So Shem should bless us that we should absolutely make the most out of every single moment Every single moment, each moment that comes, it's never coming again, right? That we should be able to really reveal Hashem's oneness with all of our heart and soul, and that we should really see in our own lives this awesome overlap between Hashem, the Torah, and the Jewish people, this oneness, and that we should understand that we're letters in the Torah itself, and that the world itself is made out of Torah. And that it's filled with godliness. And that we get to transact light. And to reveal white fire and turn it into black fire. To take spirituality and turn it into reality. Okay. So, one more thought. Um, as I mentioned, the, the name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, correlates with Pardes, which are the four levels of learning the Torah. And of course we do it in the, the opposite fashion, where we would uh, pshat, the, would, would correlate with the bottom hay of Hashem's name, which is this revealed world. 
And the Samech, which stands for Sod, would correlate with the upper Yud of Hashem's name. And that's all the secrets of the Torah. But just one step further. So the letter Samech is 60. And we have a concept uh, in Torah of something being Batol Bashishim. That means nullified in 60. So this is actually a very practical um, halacha when it comes to cooking, for instance. Like, for instance, if a, we can't mix milk and meat together. So if a drop of milk, say, dropped into a vat of chicken soup, if there's, more, if there's 60 times or more than 60 times the chicken soup than the milk, then that chicken soup would still be kosher. Because we say that the, that the milk dissolves within the 60 or more, and then it's like it's not there. Okay. So now, let's look at this idea that, that the top letter of Hashem's name, which is the Yud of the Yud Kevavke, represents just the beyond, 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 beyond infinite aspects of Hashem. And that correlates with the Samech, the Sod of Torah. So again, Sod is, Samech is 60. That means that this whole world is Batol Bashishim within God. You see, you see, we have this idea that God created something out of nothing, meaning before this world existed, there was nothing, and then God created something. It's called Yesh Me'ayin, right? Something from nothing. But on a deeper level, really, we say that God created nothing out of something, meaning that before the world was created, there was the ultimate something, God, and that this world is like nothing compared to him. And so we see that Torah expressed in the idea that the upper reaches are samach, that this whole world is batol bashishim within God, that compared to the infinity of God, that this whole world is basically nothing. 